0: Welcome to the priest hole. Your desk is. I know. It's gross. Pretty disgraceful. And what is this festy looking <laughs> coffee cup with Are You OK? It's so
1: tragic, isn't it? It's, I just. Yeah. I, I did an ABC event for Are You OK Day. It was a bake off. It was so good. Yeah. Oh, Lots yeah, yeah I did that last year. I judged it. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I was asked first. The first year <laughs> they did the bake off, they came straight to me. And uh, when I wasn't available, then they came to you. Came to me, backup auction. But one of the little thank you presents I got for doing it was an "Are you Are you okay?" You know, recyclable cup, wow. so that I could be smug in the coffee queue at the ABC. <laughs> but of course, it's disgusting because I haven't really watched it. So, so now, do you? When now you... it looks like a cry for help. So <laughs> it I, says, "Are you okay?" I always just get a takeaway cup. <laughs> That's because but... you're a monster. Seriously,
0: you can't do that anymore. People judge you. Really? Yep. So, do you feel like particularly smug when you?
1: Yes, it's like full time occupying the moral high. It's like these coffee. (laughs) It's like this coffee's made from moral high grounds. Oh God! (laughs) Wow, have you been like working on that line for months and months? Wow, that is really moral high grounds. It's the single (sighs) origin roast that cannot allow you ever to be looked down upon because (laughs) you're so. It's 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 fair trade. It's you know, blah blah blah, and yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're feeling smug and good about yourself because I'm feeling pretty terrible about myself because just in time for 7.30 to have gone to broadcasting in a high definition, yeah. I've developed a top lip full of cold sores. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, now I'll tune in. <laughs> It's just stand by yeah. as Lee Sales' makeup artist struggles with her biggest challenge, yes.
0: I always worry that when you go in with cold sores and they make you up, they then just set fire to all of yeah, their exactly. equipment uh, after As a ch- yeah. as
1: the mother of three school children I always like get knit fear, like I just, you know, if I'm ever if my kids have ever got nits I do myself just in case I infect everybody at the ABC with nits.
0: Yeah, it's I, I god I just can't even imagine your pain if you've got nits Well this is a horrendous.
1: cheery conversation so far, isn't it? That we've got my mildly depressed coffee cup. Um, <laughs> your cold sores, and we've actually met because I wanted to talk to you about your your book, which yes, is full of which tragedy. is out next
0: week. Yeah, that's right. I can go on my national book tour with a mouthful of cold sores as well. Gorgeous. Um, yes. Any ordinary day, I can finally talk about it. And do you know who's to blame for that book having been written? Ooh. You really? Yeah. Do you know why? Did I upset you? No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Meeting you was <laughs> the worst day of my life. Um, no, I. So I wrote my first book, Detainee 002, in sort of 2006, 2007. And I took – I'd been reporting – that was about Guantanamo Bay. I'd been reporting that story for five years. When I went to write the book, I took long
1: service leave and, and every bit of leave I had and Bad I worked move, on that, that full time. where you take all of your available leave and you work, work. like an absolute yep. slave during that leave and then you get to the end and you're just like, oh, God, now I need a holiday. Sorry. Exactly.
0: And so I did that and I felt like um, – Writing a book, as you know, is a very complex intellectual activity because just to structure everything and make it work and all that sort of stuff. And I had, I couldn't get it all done in the time I was on leave. I had to juggle a bit of it with when I was also at work. And I found it incredibly difficult yeah. to split my head from yeah. my day job and then get back into the world yeah. of the book. So, um, then I wrote On Doubt. Then I started hosting 7.30 and popped out two children and I felt like quite glum because I do love writing and, and, you know, want to write books and I felt like, well, I guess that's the end of me ever writing any books again because I can't see a time where I'm ever going to take a big block of leave from 7.30 and even if I did, I have these two children and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Anyway, you and I were shooting When I Get a Minute. And in between- Cry shooting.
1: Cry shooting. <laughs> that was that brilliant period where i made you get up at like 5 a.m to come in to do makeup and then shoot a whole show and then go to your normal day job that was i think we only did six episodes and it was literally like just stretched <laughs> me to the nothing end left of, of my- you but a hanker hair and some teeth <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so when we were shooting that we were marvelous be- though you were marvelous <laughs> would be when we'd be waiting between takes to do something, Right. You would pull out your laptop and yeah. start working on something, and th- you would do it all the time. And you'd write for like seven minutes at a stretch, ten minutes at a stretch, sometimes twenty. Um, even though I was sitting right there, and you were being just a rude, peffing monster by rude. working yeah, in, front of of my, in front of me. In front of me, and so I said to you this one day, you know, what are you doing? And you said, oh, I'm writing my column, or you were writing a qu- quarterly essay, whatever you were doing. And mm. I said, I just. I don't know how you do that. You know, when I wrote to Tony 002, I had to be left alone and I had to focus and blah, blah, blah. And you said, Oh, get over yourself. <laughs> and I said, What do you mean? And you said, look, do you want to write another book? Because if you ever want to write another book in your life, how do you think you're going to do it other than by snatching every tiny window of time that's available to you? Because you've got two children, you've got a massive job. If you ever want to write again, this is how you will have to learn to do it. And it was a total
1: eye-opener to me and I went away and thought – It's so funny. I have no recollection of this conversation at all. That's so funny. It really made a big impact. I'm just quite often just distributing these nuggets of insight and wisdom (laughs) and then skipping off (laughs) – So I went home and thought, she's dead
0: right. And I'd had this idea brewing in my head from late 2014 that I wanted to write something about the days on which our life is suddenly upended. And so I thought, I'm going to take that advice and because I I felt like, okay, now it's become just a choice about... How much do I want to do this? And so I thought, well, I do really want to do it. So I thought, all right, I'll just start noodling around and doing it like she does her stuff and just doing bits and pieces where I can. I'm not going to sign a deal. I'm not even going to tell anyone I'm working on anything. I'm just going to noodle around and do it and see what happens. And so then I did that for about two years and then I thought, um, this is actually going to turn into a book. And then it was another two years. (laughs) It's it's taken a really long time but
1: my book is done. And – I, as you know, live my life avoiding any opportunity or obligation to blow any sunshine up. You're already sunshine-crammed ass. So but should I bend over? <laughs> sure, yeah. However, it is, it is a terrific, terrific book, and uh, just completely full of surprises. Some, some of which were hard for me as a reader, actually, because mm. it's all about me. Um, <laughs> but I sort of I knew that you had sort of developed this real fascination with what happens to people to whom an unthinkable thing happens on an otherwise ordinary day. And you talked about it a lot. And, you know, when um, Philip Hughes, the cricketer, um, died from that blow to the head, I should have twigged because you know nothing about cricket, right? (laughs) But you wanted to talk about that again and again. I think Mm. even in the podcast we sort of discussed this. One of the very first episodes, yep. And I feel like... As your nominative friend, <laughs> I should have really picked up like how, you know, how – what a frame of mind you were in. Like I don't think I quite worked out how much kind of pain and uncertainty you were in. And I so reading the book where you're very, very upfront about that, I found really tricky – because um, I felt bad. I well, felt like no, the uh, the horrible Are You Okay Cup I should have read every now and again just on sales. <laughs> you hate cricket. Are you okay? No, I think – I um, knew you were having a tough I, time. I'm
0: from, I just... the, I'm from the school of um, bottle it up deep down inside, so I'm not surprised that you didn't realise that anything was sort of playing on my mind. But it was it was that and it was um, – the lint Cafe siege happened yeah. very soon off the back of that. Yep. And it just felt like – because my job every single night,
1: yeah.
0: what I am seeing night after night after night – is some poor person that got up out of bed this morning and they ate their breakfast, they made their bed, they shut the front door behind them and they didn't have an inkling that this was, you know, the sands were running out of the hourglass and that they were going to then have something happen on this day that was going to transform their life forevermore and that your life would be split into normal life and then your new normal that would happen after whatever this thing was. And I see that day after day after day and it has made me somewhat um,
1: anxious and fearful
0: because mm. I think,
1: well, why would that not happen to me? Plus the experience you had in your own life where your own life changed just with diabolical speed. Um, yeah. So I had my um,
0: – when I had my second child – Things went badly wrong um, at the 37-week mark and I uh, was in pain and I went to hospital. I knew it wasn't labour because I'd had one child. And to cut a long story short, um, I had what's known as a uterine rupture, which is basically when your child chooses to kick out through the ceiling. Having met that child, I now uh, know exactly what's going on. Completely, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is
0: so... Remarkably unsurprising once you've met that child <laughs> that that was his manner of entry into the world. Um, and so I had a, a massive, massive um, hemorrhage. The Keep in mind I was supposed to be your doula at this birth oh, event, right? Like remember that? Yes, because my then husband was due to be flying to Melbourne that day and so you were you were pegged to be the person to come up with me. I'm really glad that you didn't actually have to go through I would that have been useless. experience. I would have. And I think you would have been traumatised.
1: Um Anyway, so I or maybe I just would have kicked into gear like an incredibly amazing person. Like I actually, you know, I'm sort of. Uh, I look back and I think, oh my god, like I was going to be attending this event because I was all like, yes, roll <laughs> on the rubber gloves. I'm going to deliver this child. Then like, oh god, it's all going horribly wrong. Okay, I'll just be standing over there. Anyway, um, anyway. but yes, what, so, so they.
0: That's usually a fatal event if you, when you have something like that happen to you. And it was very lucky for me that I happened to be at the hospital and my God. doctor, my obstetrician, happened to have decided, I think we'll get this baby out. So he went to scrub up and while he scrubbed up was when it happened. Oh and gosh. so <clears throat> it wasn't very long until I was in theatre, but it was a very um, – it's, it's all in the book. I don't really want to have to talk about it. But no, it's sorry, a uh, um, very uh, – it was a very sudden and traumatic experience yeah. and painful experience. And the baby was deprived of oxygen and so I woke up in intensive care with or you know um, high dependency yeah. with uh, no baby and he's in neonatal intensive care and they're saying, oh, you don't know if he's got brain damage because he lost oxygen and you've had three transfusions. And it was this horrendous – and it began a sort of period of my life where – a lot of things went wrong yeah. basically and so I was shocked at how suddenly my life went from everything going pretty swimmingly to everything seeming yeah. really difficult yeah. um, and, you know, in a, in a way that I was thinking the other day in a way that it seems to be continuing. Like, for example, that one of my children recently was in hospital for some surgery. A week later my father died. I flew to Brisbane to um, say goodbye to him. I... Had to come back to Sydney because my child had to have his post-operative appointment. When I was on the way to hospital with him, I got a flat tire. I know. <laughs>
1: it was just a flat tire. It was just. It's uh, pretty spectacular. Um, yeah. The thing that interests me about you, uh, although otherwise you're pretty uninteresting, is um, when I. Your tendency is that you you work through problems right like so you're like i feel pain in pain and um uncertain and anxious so i'm going to write a large book (laughs) where i interview all of these people who have experienced comparable or worse pain yeah and i'm going to make a project out of it and like the interesting thing about this book is that you've gone and interviewed all of these people like well-known people some of whom you know haven't given these sorts of interviews before um about the dreadful things that happened to them but your your approach is actually it's less about you know give me the actual details of what happened to you but like what how did you get through this
0: yeah and it's the book is structured i mean i think you've absolutely nailed it which is that i i did it because i was trying to find answers to questions i found confronting through what had occurred in my own life, but also from what I see on seven thirty every night, which is, you know, the the central truth and, and a wonderful and a terrible thing about life is that we never know what is coming next. And excuse me, when you think
1: about that That's a great place for you to burp, by the way. <laughs> it really that. add to the profundity of the insight. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh too hard, you'll crack those cold sores, baby. <laughs> it's really hurting when I smile. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'd offer you some of my lip balm here, but I just oh, just don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear! Well, I'm glad we're like a natural.
0: <laughs> woman. Wow! I'm listening to poetry. You're breaking into song. I know. What's going on? I don't know. Um, once you understand that, once you think about that, that's how life is, and that you understand that you are as vulnerable as the next mm. person to getting MS or being yeah. in a car accident or having something like that happening to you. Well, how should you live Yeah, and, ha- and ha- so i wanted to and i guess i wanted reassurance that no more bad things would happen to me
1: yeah
0: but you can't you can never get that reassurance the point of the
1: book where you actually calculate the odds of the third stewart diver mrs stewart diver <laughs> dying yeah. in a hideous way uh it was the ultimate expression of your <laughs> determination to find a precise <laughs> to get answer answers, yeah and of course you don't but um Oh the, the the other thing that I really like I found the book so moving but also absurdly uplifting in a in a yes. way that really surprised me and and there's a couple of um, interviews that I found really memorable in the book I mean like it's full of memorable interviews um and but like the one with Hannah Rochelle um whose husband the publisher um Matt Rochelle um uh he died in a surfing accident, yeah is just it was such a fascinating and frank exchange like you're asking really hard questions that are kind of the questions that don't normally get asked of the bereaved I yeah mean- well
0: that was I wanted to do a couple of things one was to ask the questions that we feel awkward about asking people yeah so in the case of Hannah to stick with her example um you know, she arrived home from her day, and two police were waiting at the house for her, and they told her that her lovely forty-two-year-old husband had died. Um, so then I wanted to know, well, what, like, how do they break that news, and what after they've told you, like, then what happens? Do they stick around? Do they go? Do they what do they do? Mm. And then, so I wanted to know what happens in the minutes after that. What happens in the da- hours after and that? Her and the days. Response
1: after that. is so they were amazing. Intriguing.
0: She was. She's a writer, so she's a good observer of things, mm. but she was also – I don't think I've ever sat down with somebody who was so utterly honest about mm. everything. Um, one of the things that she said that sticks with me was in the weeks after she said, I felt this incredible shame because I missed having sex and I felt like um, your husband just died. Do yeah. you not have bigger things to worry about? But yeah. um, And so she was so honest about all of that kind of stuff. Um, and there were other people as well that I asked – very frank things of because I felt like well I'm just wasting everyone's time if I don't try to get to the truth and the heart of these things and actually everyone in the book really was almost desperate actually to talk about these things because no one had ever had ever asked them in detail so another person in it is Walter Mickack whose whole family was killed in the Port Arthur Massacre And he said to me – he was a pharmacist and he said, oh, sometimes people would see my car outside the pharmacy late at night and they would, you know, speculate about what I was doing. And he was clearly, without saying it, alluding to they thought that he would maybe kill himself. And so I thought, well, Walter's opened that door, so I feel that I can go through it. So I said to him, possibly not as bluntly as I'm about to say it now, but this was the gist of it, you know, nobody has more means – or knowledge Mm. than a pharmacist about how to kill themselves, what, given what you'd been through, stopped you from doing that? Mm. Um, And he answered it really honestly and said, you know, it's not to say I didn't think of doing it, but I just felt that I couldn't because of my parents and the rest of my family Mm. and they had already suffered this enormous pain because it was their grandchildren Mm. and I couldn't do that to them. And I also never could lose this tiny, tiny glimmer of hope that maybe things would get better, like maybe once the trial was over, maybe once some time had elapsed that things would improve. Um, And so it was incredibly humbling to me that people trusted me enough to tell me such intimate stuff. And all of the people that I met, I just came away from, as you say, feeling absolutely uplifted about just people's capacity to adapt to things and cope with things.
1: There's a knock on effect too about reading about, talking about, all of those blunt truths of trauma, right? Like, so it we all lapse straight into, "Well, my heart goes out to you," and you know, is there anything I can do? Do let me know if there's anything I can do, sort of thing. Mm. But what I really got from your book was just these that all of the stuff that we feel awkward about when something terrible happens to somebody that we know and love, and you're asking. I mean, you interview cops that break the news to people, priests that go and like people who are always around the bereaved. Mm. And even the lovely interviews you did with the women who work in the morgue and Mm. who bring people in to identify Mm. the bodies of the people that they love who've died. And and that was so valuable because they were – they actually – give really helpful insights into mm. how you deal with people who have been bereaved. And I think that the fear of doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, is what often keeps us at a distance from from the bereaved. And we miss opportunities to make their lives better because we're too scared of screwing it up. And you kind of... If you were being sensible, you'd reason that, well, what can you ever do that's going to make them, you know, in worse pain than they already are? Um, Yeah, but the point
0: that I think Walter Mickack makes is, um, he said, I understand that, but my wife and my three-year-old and my six-year-old just got killed. What could you possibly say that could be worse than that or mm. that could make that worse? Yeah. Like, And he said for him the only thing that made it worse was that you'd suffered this terrible loss and then you would lose friends because yeah. they didn't know what to say and so yeah. then your loss was compounded by yeah. more loss. Um, and talking to a lot of those people who work with people who are traumatised or um, bereaved, it has changed the way that I deal with people. I'm yeah. much more likely now to sort of barrel in and I'm yeah. not so concerned that I might say or do the wrong thing.
1: It's so weird. When um, when your dad died and you texted me and Murph um, and we were just like, oh, my God, you know, this – and we had both just finished reading your book, and on our oh. drive over to your house, it was really—we both just said, "Right, well, thank Christ, we just read her book on how to deal with this situation." <laughs> yeah, and so it, well, was, it and, actually was substantially less awkward oh. because, you know, like it was just really—it was really useful, sales. So, and you guys handled it uh, flawlessly,
0: which is you sort of acted just like normal, mm. um, and just were helpful and still said. Things that sort of made me laugh and, you know, like just so it was like this terrible thing happened suddenly, but then you guys sort of acted normally. I mean, I think the other thing that helped me in the writing of it was um, when dad died was that I previously would have thought I don't want to um, be with someone when they die. I don't want to see someone die. and. All of the research shows generally that it is better to do that because Mm. it helps your brain process Mm. it. And so I was really, really glad that I had sort of thought through all of this so much and that then I did go up and sort of sit with Dad and my brother and my mother over all those hours um, because it just felt like the right thing to do. Um, But even like say when I came back to Sydney, I remember I was really just, not functioning very well and I was landing about four o'clock in the afternoon and I thought, Oh, the kids will be coming back and I've got a there's no food in the house and oh God, what am I I'll have to like go get the groceries now and so I'm trying to work it all out. And you picked me up from the airport and you just had a boot full of groceries. <laughs> and I hadn't said anything to you about that. But it was like just the most useful possible thing to do because I think often for people when you're having a hard time, you aren't functioning at your normal capacity and so that's where you sort of need your friends to step up and just sort of do it for you really. Um, So I think for me too, the other thing with the book that um, as well as hearing these people's stories, I didn't want it to read like a collection of stories, I wanted it to read like a cohesive...
1: It's like an, it's sort of, it's almost like an essay really. It's about
0: on survival really
1: Yeah. and... And the only way
0: to sort of make it all, I thought, fit as one cohesive whole was through first person and through making it my exploration of these questions and what are my questions at the start and what have I learnt by the end. And as part of that, for me, some of the most interesting stuff was um, going through all the psychological research about how and why we think like we do. So when something like the Lint Cafe happens, why do we always, for example, Sees on and hears stories of people saying, um, oh, I was meant to be there but yeah. at the last minute I missed my yeah. bus and we sort of leap on these things as they're like significant um, and we also always feel like, oh, that could have been me or "Oh, if that happened to me, I'd never cope and so yeah. looking at why do we think like that and it's really fascinating because there's all sorts of research that shows why the human brain acts like it does and even things that you think are the most random way of thinking can be usually explained by maths or probability mm. or biology so even say for example one of the ones i thought was amazing because i thought it was just my unique weird way of thinking <laughs> but it turns out there's a whole branch of mathematics around it yeah. um is when the dream world roller coaster accident happened or and mm. you know that log ridey thing yeah. or whatever it is um water ride um and four people diet i was really like most Australians really rattled by that. Um, and I remember I was picking up my kids from daycare and I thought, you're never these? going on one of you're those. You're never going yeah. on one of those things. Yeah. Like that is awful. And so I made this snap judgment as I was driving them home in my car. Now the odds of my children being catastrophically injured in a car accident are so yeah. much more substantial than being injured on a theme park ride. But I was – my decision-making was basically, well – it would be really inconvenient to not have my car and I need to drive them around to get to places so I'm prepared to take that risk but going on a theme park ride is not a risk that I have to take and the consequences could be so catastrophic that I don't want to take that risk. That is a branch of maths called Minimax Regret which is where you make a um, decision in the present based on potential future consequences. Um, And so pretty much every odd little way that human beings have of thinking is... It can be explained, and it's
1: not unique to you anyway it is um it's such a good book. I'm really stunned, but that you managed to turn it out <laughs> in a couple of very tumultuous years, but it's just it's a it's an incredible read, and it's really helpful. Well, so thanks thank to you it. thank you. We'll never speak of this praise again. <laughs> <laughs>